listening to the Medic Materials Podcast, hosted by Mike Turek, Emily Yates, Kelsey Coons, and Gerard Cuomo. All are current EMS providers and educators with a combined 30 years experience. Each month, we discuss EMS news, medical science, and review actual EMS calls, bringing many educational opportunities to the listener. Portions of the calls have been altered to protect the privacy and identity of all involved. Hello and welcome everyone back to the Medic Materials Podcast. Uh, Gerard and Kelsey, you're on Skype today, so that makes me all by my lonesome because... I am still mad at Kelly for what she did on uh, the beginning of the month. So how are you guys? Doing good. Enjoying the nice weather. Yeah, right? Yeah, Since not too bad. It is not too bad out. It was freezing cold this morning at my house. I don't know if that was just because I'm on the ridge or what, but it was freezing cold. Um, yeah, it I, is, was, I, mean, I thought it was chilly, but not that bad. I was not okay with that. Um, but, yeah, so we're uh, we're – Going to be talking about a uh, an article that was floating around um, on uh, on Facebook and Instagram and stuff, and there were a lot of uh, a lot of comments on it, and I just felt like it was a interesting topic to be uh, to be discussing, especially with us, because you know the way we run uh, EMT classes and. Uh, you know, the, the way that Gerard, you set up scenarios and stuff like that. I'm intrigued to see how you guys, um, you know, think and your opinions on, on how to go about fixing what this article talks about. So Kelsey, let's dive into your rig check and then we'll get started. So guys, I feel like it's been a little bit since I've done one of these, but we have new things coming for Medic Materials. So if you have recently tried to log on to our website, you'll have noticed that the website is currently down. We're going to be revamping that website to provide you with our newest updates on what Medic Materials is going to be doing to advance education in the future. We're also redoing our merchandise, and we're going to have a brand new store with all new merchandise to purchase, so make sure you keep an eye out for that. And just a reminder to sign up for Patreon, so that way you'll have access to the best topics and call reviews in a third podcast every month. And then we are going to shout out our peoples in Trinidad and Colorado today. So thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate your support. Oh, yeah. I still think it's funny that you said peoples. <laughs> I made sure to do that on purpose. <laughs> um, so if you guys, I, again, I don't know if you guys have seen this article. I think I sent it to both of you, whether or not you read it or not, who the heck knows. Um, but uh, it was, it was off of overrunproductions.com and uh, it it was titled Toxic Heroism and EMS The Perfect Storm. So, I honestly, yeah, I have the article here in front of me. I'm going to I'm going to read some of it, but I don't exactly know. There's a there's one name on it, Daniel Schweitzer. Um, I don't know if that's actually who wrote it or not. There's no like author by um, but the whole concept of it was more or less talking about how we are taking when we first introduce EMS to the populace and they go, oh, hey, that would be a really interesting career to get into. We are introducing it in the wrong form and fashion We're we're still introducing it like, you know, we are heroes of every day that we're, you know, saving lives and that we're ripping people from the grips of death and this, that, the other thing. When this article says we should be really focusing on 
not burning these people out with false expectations, but training them for repeat offenders, boring long-distance transports, you know, all of the mundane things that we do that takes up 97% of our call volume. So I I think that's where I want to touch base on how you guys feel about that kind of stuff. Like I said, I'm going to read a couple parts of it. Uh, But then I also want to talk about how we change lab scenarios to fit creating a better provider post-school. And I think we all can relate to, you know, good and bad uh, lab experiences. So um, this author uh, starts off by saying, you know, observing EMS from a distance – a seemingly random set of events come together to create a storm that no one has ever seen before and no way to counter it. Um, they go on and they say, um, you know, they're at, we're at a critical point in the profession of EMS and where we go from here largely depends on how we as clinicians define our role and how we do that role. Um, and they say the most important, um, you know, part, again, many running parts, but one of the most important part is going to be how we define this job and who we bring to the profession, bring into the profession to carry it forward and be the leaders of the next generation. And that's something that, Gerard, I think you and I touched base on in just a conversation that we had one day in that we look at the people that taught us, you know, and it quickly, you quickly realize like we are their replacement in this business. And now it goes even further. Like from the time that you and I had this discussion, you know, we were feeling like, Oh man, you know, we are the, we are going to be the old guys in EMS soon. But now Kelsey is our replacement in EMS. And that's even crazier to think about. Um, it's a simple life. It, it, it is. And it's, it's makes me feel really old. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. They go on to say, here's what I see is one of the biggest problems. Uh, we're selling a bill of goods to people that aren't interested in what the job entails. And that's hurting the profession. What am I talking about? Think back to when you first joined your cadet program, signed up for EMT or paramedic school, or took your first position in EMS. Think about the signs you see in the advertising for the available jobs. What do you notice? Most of the time, you will hear talk about saving lives, rescuing, being a hero, or something of that nature. People looking to join EMS organizations get inundated with this messaging. On TV, shows with EMS are frequently portrayed as doing over-the-top resuscitations on patients, frequently in areas where buildings have collapsed around them in the back of speedboats trapped under leaking trank, you know, tank trailers. You, right. He goes on to, you get it. So the recruit coming into EMS has this idea of what they do before they start doing it for real. This isn't much different than most other jobs. Honestly, otherwise, how would people choose their profession? In school, they train relentlessly for life-threatening, potentially dangerous environments where lives are always in the balance. Everything from the assigned reading to simulator sessions 
focuses on the most critical high stakes situations. And then graduation, licensure, and now finally our newbie EMT or paramedic is going out to do what, you know, they were trained to do and reality sets in. Non-emergent transports to the ED, the frequent flyers who just may need more social service than, you know, ambulance transport, uh, you know, or an on-scene rescue, uh, the calls originally coded as emergent that turn out to only be urgent at best start to eat at the newbie. And they go, this isn't what I signed up for. So I'm going to pause there and and kind of, I want to unpack it with you guys. First with, you know, how do you, I think we all can say we agree with this. It's a bad marketing campaign for EMS. But yeah. how do we go about what should be the message then? Because I agree, you have to draw people in and the excitement factor is cool to draw people in. But how do you make it like, what would your marketing campaign be for this kind of thing? I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it sounds, I mean, kind of shitty, I'm sure, to most people that do this. But honestly, I, w- I would change the, the whole theme of it from, you know, the whole race the reaper, save lives, all that crap. And uh, just be honest about it and say, look, you're going to be basically a, a healthcare provider in outside of a hospital. Yeah. You know, it may be emergent. It may not be emergent more than likely it's not going to be. Um, but yeah, geared more towards this is going to be a healthcare provider type profession, not a first line, first responder, you know, you know, holding the line kind of thing. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's I, I granted. Talk- yeah. There's times, where, there's times where that does have to happen, but for the most part that it, it's the exception of the rule, right. you know? And, and, and I, I, I think doing that, you would actually eliminate a lot of the, you know, for lack of a better term, fucking idiots that we get that, you know, within oh, two yeah. weeks, you know, their shoelaces are undone. They're fucking, you know, they got the freaking, uh, you know, the, 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 the swagger going and running right. their mouths about war stories from, you know, like, you know, four days ago. Right. And, all, uh, you all, know, all the whackers it's like, would be gone. Right. Exactly. You know, walking around with the pagers and all that shit. Um, you know, for when that, that, that possibility that the sky might fall. Right. You know, so. Right. And, and I, yeah, agree. I mean, like, I think, I think you're on the right track in, you know, looking at us as first responders, I think is, you know, it's that nasty umbrella term for cops, firemen and EMS. And it's like, okay, well, great. Cops are called cops. Firemen are called firemen. EMS is called first responders. Why? We're, we're pre, yeah. we're, we should be, like you said, you know, a nurse is a in-hospital medical clinician. Why can't we be a pre-hospital clinician, right? Because that's, yeah. that's, that's what we are, right? We are providing. The hospital care provider. Right. You know? I, you know? Go ahead. I feel like I have a different perspective on this because like, obviously I was a junior EMT for, you know, a while and my entire first year. I'm pretty sure I only did transports and like the basic handholding calls. Like I, it took me like a literal year to get a call where I was like, oh, this person's like kind of sick, not even like really sick. 
So I feel like even going into it, I was like, I mean, I, you know, you get that like notion in your head, like, oh, you know, like it's going to be the whole saving lives thing. But my entire first year was, you know, the mundane, boring stuff, which, you know, 80% of our job is handholding. So I feel like for me, it wasn't, it was easier almost to transition into realizing that that is a majority of what my job is. But I feel like on the same side, I mean, think about like cops. All cops do on TV is shoot bad guys. What do they do most of the time? Pull people over, write tickets. Right. Go to and domestic. I think it's a generalized right. like, connotation all across for first responders in general if you want to group us in with them. Well, and true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you look at any type of profession that does, you know, what we do as that first responder community, right? How many fires do firemen go to? Not very many. Yeah. Right. But, you know, they're, oh, yeah, we're running into the flames. No, you're not. You're going to a fire alarm activation to go there, find out right. it's, you know, burnt toast, reset the alarm <laughs> right. and go back and start jerking off. That's what you're going right. to do. You know, and and that's the same thing with us. But we have this we've we've taken the pedestal almost and we've raised it so high that now we're uh, we're all held at like Olympus hero level when really we shouldn't be, you know. Yeah, I mean, you you got I mean, let's face it, the the media and the freaking entertainment uh, doesn't really help. It doesn't help. Uh, The you know, you get those stupid shows like. 911 and they're all like you know top rated and all this shit and you're like great so that means all the fucking morons out there that know nothing about what we do this is this is the only exposure to the you know the inside track that they get right and they think this is how it is and they expect you know? that kind of level care when you oh, yeah. get there and it's like and then they're angry when you're like this is not how this works like right like when i when i meander outside to the overdose you know that's you know, sitting there and I'm just like, okay, well, you know, here's what we're going to do. Right. And they're you like, didn't... well, why aren't you moving with any kind of expediency? I'm like, well, because you know, I do don't... you want the sarcastic, my answer, or do you want the real answer? <laughs> you know, because the, the sarcastic, my answer is I don't really give a shit, but, <laughs> <laughs> but at the I'll same... see four more of them. I'll see more, four more just like them today. So just, you know, just chill. Right. But, um, you know, but it does. But the reality is, is, you know, yeah, we're not we're not going to run into the freaking burning building or any of that shit. You know, uh, it, it's it's not what we do. And you know what? It's funny because everyone, you know, everyone always pulls the oh, well, you know, we, we should be running everywhere because that's what they do on TV. Firemen don't run into <laughs> burning buildings either. You yeah. Know? No. Like cops run after suspects. Other than that, I don't ever see them run anywhere like. No, no, you know, and that's only when they have to. So I, I, I am 100% in agreement that the narrative needs to change. And I think, um, you know, if we can somehow get the message out there, right. When I was, when I went to the conference, uh, like two or three weeks ago, however long it was now, mm-hmm. I, in my culture, um, lecture that I did, I, I brought up the fact that EMS needs to change its like it's, it's message from, and it's thought process from being, you know, that hero responder medical provider to, we are just an offshoot of the customer service industry. We dude, I couldn't tell you how many looks that I got in that room oh, yeah. when I said we are no different than the barista at Starbucks 
that goes, here, sir, here's your coffee, you know. Oh, you actually said that? That's awesome. I, I did. Because because there's, there's no, like, I got one look from a dude in the back that was like, and I was like, it's true. This is we- I don't know if I necessarily believe that, though. You know, am I because, lying? Like, <laughs> if you think about it, like, you know, you go to Starbucks and, I mean, we have those people that call us and, you know, in our mind, they don't really need us. But in their mind, they needed us enough to call 911. And to a certain extent, at some point or another, there are those people that abuse the system and start calling you just because they can. And then, yeah, at that point, to that one person, you are just a Starbucks barista. But I'm to not- the general majority... We are people that they call when they need something, however relevant that is to us if we think that they warrant an ambulance or not. But that all comes down to, you know, the U.S. healthcare system as a whole is knowing when to go to an urgent care, when you need 911, when to see your primary care doctor versus the ER. And that's not the fault of the people. I mean, there are those people that, you know, they call every single Friday because they like their favorite crew that's on. But I'm not, I'm the not... general majority, I feel like, call us because in their mind, their problem is important enough. And even the person that's having an issue that they've had for three days, but they have no way to get to the hospital, we are their way to get to the hospital. And we're not just some, you know, throwaway. Like, to them, we are the most important people to help them at that time. So, hold on, hold on, hold on. One of the things I like to do is, okay. Just time for for one second, then I'm going to come back to you. Because I think, Mm -hmm. Kelsey... I think, Kelsey, you, you misunderstood where my barista comment was going. I'm not demeaning us as uh, what we do and how people perceive us. What I was trying to get at, and again, I elaborated way more in the lecture, is that we are like the barista in that we are, there is an exchange of goods and services for payment, right? So somebody calls us and they have chest pain, right? So we come, we provide a service, we fit, you know, fix their chest pain, give them an assessment, take them to the hospital, you know, whatever. And then they pay us for that service. So it's the same as if you went to Duncan, ordered a large light and sweet, they make your large light and sweet, you give them money. It's a transaction, right? And it'd be, it, again, it's no different than if we said, hey, we have plumbing that needs to get done. Let's call the plumber. The plumber is going to come in. He's going to say, okay, it's going to be this much for this much work. Cool, bang, boom, do the work. Here's that much money, right? All co- I mean, we, we do kind of have the same ass cracks. Yeah, right? All customer service, <laughs> into, like all customer service based, right? And when you look at EMS as a customer service industry, you have to move the culture forward because if you if you maintain the disgruntled bitchy culture that we have now, would you if you had the opportunity and the and the luxury of living in a district where you have chest pain, you call, you get a crew. They're disgruntled fucks that don't give a rat's behind about you and treat you like dog shit, non-human, whatever. Just like so many providers do out there. Make make the whole, you know, experience miserable. If you had the opportunity and you needed to call again, would you end up calling the same place or would you look for something different? 
right? If you have an experience, a negative experience at a restaurant, what do you do? You tell everybody around you don't go to that restaurant and then you find somewhere that's that's going to give you a better experience. We don't I, mean, have- I would change your, I would change your variable a little bit. I would actually change it to you called for, you know, the toe pain that scared you into calling 911 and the sure. crew treated you like a fucking idiot. Sure. Even and you have the chest pain, are you going to call? It it works both ways. It works in any scenario. Yeah. But we're not in the, we don't have the, like, people don't have the luxury of going, I don't want ABC ambulance, so I'm going to call XYZ ambulance. They don't have that luxury unless they, like, drive down the road. So that's where I'm thinking, like, we, we need to look at ourselves as customer service because if we're acting, like if we're acting more- like that, then we're not treating people like dog shit anymore. And I feel like it's less of a customer service than a public service because, like, you serve all... If you're a public service, you serve all of the public, well, no matter what their complaints are, no matter how you feel about them. It's just a baseline for anybody in healthcare. Yeah, but it's... Right, same. but we're not a public service. Right. We're, we're, we're a business. We're a business. Exactly. We like- charge people money for what we do. They're, we don't... They're, we're not getting their money out of their taxes. They're not paying our salaries we don't have a union we're no, we don't have any of that stuff like other public services do we are a business and, plain and simple and that's and that's why i use that whole customer service type of thing to get people thinking like oh man you know yeah like this is just an exchange of goods right and it's a transaction and if i have a bad transaction somewhere i'm going to have a negative experience and i'm not going to want to go back that's why, you know, that's why when, when you call, like, so Gerard and I do a call, right? And we go to Betty's house and Gerard and I are total dicks and Betty hates us, right? The next time Betty calls, do you think that she's going to be the nice sweetheart or is she going to be automatically defensive because she thinks that everyone at that agency is just as terrible as Mike and Gerard was the last time they treated her. That's why you get those negative repetitive reactions with patients because they're just on defensive, you know, because they had a bad experience with one person, you know, but we do that to ourselves when we show up and we're all grumpy and miserable. Exactly. Because why we don't, we don't look at our industry as what it is. We look at it as, ugh, Betty fucking called again. How dare she interrupt my poop? That's how we look at it. And then we're, like, disgruntled that she called. But that's uh, that's not something, I mean, it sucks, but, like, not everybody is like that. I mean, eventually, yeah, it gets tiring to show up, but, like, at that time, she needs you, and I get it. It sucks, but, like, there's nothing you can do about that. So, like, well, if you're uh, that miserable, just leave. Well, I think that's the point is, you know, having a different mindset coming into this versus the whole, we're going to pump you up and make you think you're going to you know do all this stuff. And at the end of the day, all you need to do is go to Betty's house with a smile on your face and take her to the hospital or wherever. Right. You know, that's a lot. That's a big difference than, Hey man, you know, you're going to be freaking, you know, running around, you know, saving lives with one hand driving with the other, at you know, top speed. And, you know, and it's like, it's a completely different thing. So when your mindset if you're a person that has that mindset of coming into this where, 
you know, I'm going to be a, you know, effing hero and we're going to do all this crap. And, and then all of a sudden you find out it's not, well then, yeah, then you, you you're, you're burnt and you're disgruntled, you know? actually thinking of t- talking then, about this today because i was actually thinking that about that and going and getting some job at some big fancy corporation that you realize isn't all that it's cut out to be you either stay in the job and you're miserable or you leave right well and yeah it, no there's no difference it's just, the problem here is people just don't leave right because you know? <laughs> right and 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 i mean poor, poor performance so, so again this, this which also illustrates the fact that you know this is a business i mean let's be honest uh, if, there's a lot of people with piss poor performance that are never held to account for what they do. Yeah. And because and, we need to have asses and seats. Right. And think about it, right. You go to any, you go to a construction, a con, you know, a, a contractor, right. With 12 employees, it doesn't even have to be a large contractor, right? If one guy is fucking up and making mistakes and they train them, they retrain them, still fucking up, bad attitude, shows to work up late, whatever. What are they going to do? They're going to can his ass because they need to replace them with somebody that can actually be good, be a good employee. What do we do? We go, well, we need to fill a truck. Whereas the contractor goes, you know what? We'll suffer for a little while until we can pull somebody else in, right? You guys are going to have to work a little bit harder. Maybe the job will take a little longer, whatever. We'll, we'll work around it. And we go, well, we'll keep that shitty provider and that bad attitude, that bad work environment. We'll keep that just so we can put a truck on the road. We don't, we don't take the sacrifice of, oh, well, maybe the boss is going to have to pull a, a shift in a truck, you know, for a couple sure. days until they find somebody that, they want to work with at that agency, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm, it's a, it's a revolving circle of suck, you know, that's really what it, what it comes down to. So moving. I was just going to say, I mean, it's it's funny. We're, we're actually talking about this because whatever reason the other day I was just sitting around with, you know, not a lot to do except think. And uh, that must've been like one of the things I was, Oh yeah, it was, it was a horrible day. (laughs) So if if I'm thinking it's a bad day, you know, (laughs) but, uh, one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, uh, along with the whole, you know, finding out this isn't what it, you know, was, you know, sold to you as, and all that stuff, which, you know, of course is going to you know take the wind out of your sails and, you know, get you all grumpy and shit. I mean, one of the things we, we also do is we put this like such an emphasis on, you know, these very rare occurrence forms of success, like the code save, you know, uh, you know, the, just, just the things that we don't, you know, that we don't really get a lot of. And, you know, I was just thinking about like myself, you know, I, I've been doing this all these, yeah, shit. I, I, I don't have a code save, you know, I have Roska a couple times and, you know, it just, it didn't work out, but right. You know, I've never had a patient that was, you know, in full cardiac arrest, go into the hospital and then come out later. And it was just thinking about like, you know, we put such emphasis on, you know, what type of provider you are based on, you know, stuff like that. And we lose sight of, you know, all the little things that we do that are so damn successful that, you know, actually did make a difference. And, you know, how many diff breathers did you take to a hospital that, 
you know, I mean, shit might take 10 a week. How many of them would have died if we didn't do that? Right. You know, and it's like, we don't measure ourselves on stuff like that. We're always looking for these big ticket items, you know, the, the massive MVA, you know, all that shit. And, and it's like, and yeah, and, and I can see where the, you know, that there's a level of apathy that can set in after a while with people along with all the, you know, the not, you know, being, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the business that was sold to, you know, to them as, and that kind of stuff. And it just forms this like perfect storm of turning someone into a complete douche, you know? Yeah. I can't agree more. Um, you know, it's, it's funny how there's, there's always a different metric of measuring success depending on what business you're at, you know? Um, it, it could be as to the administrator, how many calls did we do this year versus how much revenue did we make? Right. right. And that, and that measures success or, you know, to a businessman, how, you know, okay, we started a business, we had this, you know, potential, you know, percentage growth. We made this much revenue. We invested this much. We created eight new products. Cool. We did really well. Right. And then, and then, yeah, like those are measurable big ticket items that can be obtained. And then you look at the provide, like the generic provider. Right. And mm. yeah, I, I, it, it is amazing that you said that. Cause I, I didn't really even think of that coming into this. Um, but just hearing that it really is, you are focused so much and I couldn't tell you, uh, how many times, Kelsey, you're doing it right now. How many times have you run code and or mega code scenarios in paramedic school? Um, I feel like since we've done ACLS, you average like one adult or one pediatric a week. Yeah. So, cool. I might do three cardiac arrests a year where I'm at. Maybe. Right. right? No, other years it's been more, you know, I was on a tear there where I was doing one a week. Sometimes mm. it just does happen. Right. And yeah, recently I was literally had one where it was like, yeah, I did three in one week and it was like, you know, yeah, there was a stint know, where there stop. was like one every day for like 10 days. And I was like, what is going on? Like what's in the yeah. water? Right. Yeah, and, for real. and you get those type of events, but really it's a, it is more of a halo skill. Right. And, and, you know, we practice it and practice it and practice it, which is great. But how many, you know, how many times, like you said, when you actually look at it, you get Rosk, you feel great, cool. You deliver them three days later, you find out they died, you know, in the ICU upstairs, you know, and it just is what it is. I've had Rosk plenty of times. I've never had somebody walk out of the hospital, just like you. Never. Yep. Fifteen-year career, never once. You know the success rate for someone actually walking out is under three percent. Under three percent in America, and that's for every single cardiac arrest in the United States is under three percent. So you're yep. looking at a couple dozen, maybe a hundred, for the entire country. And this is our measuring stick. I, I'd right. rather, you know, that's <laughs> I, like, that's unfathomable to me. I can't believe right, I got but that I don't word think out. It's... But, but we do it, you know? 
it, it's literally exactly what we do. I don't you know, think I, it's... I'm just using arrest as an example. I mean, there's many, you know, things like that where it's, you know, there's these big ticket items that, you know, rarely occur. But, you know, that's like how a lot of people you know, measure themselves, you know. And and I know you want to say something, Kelsey. I'm like, I agree. I think it needs to be a new provider mindset. So like the, the people that listen to our show, right? Sit down and think about, you know, how many codes you did a year and, and what you measure your personal success on and see if it's like, okay, you know what? I handheld that old lady's hand for 45 minutes while I transported to the ER. I didn't do a thing, but talk to her. How many patients did I talk to and put my paperwork down and just have a conversation with them because they're human and that's that's what I should be doing, not fucking paperwork, right? Measure your success with those types of things, you know? Right. Hey, because that's going to build you to be a better provider. Oh, hey, I had five diff breather that, you know, this week and four of them I delivered better off than when I found them. Their sat right. increased, exactly. their labor went down, their ventilations increased, whatever. You know what? That was that was good. I did good this week. Yeah. I agree. Take the small wins because I would rather 500 small wins over one big win. That's just, yeah, I you mean, know. you know, and, and you know, will, will, will you even have an opportunity for the one big win, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. Yep. Kelsey, I, I didn't mean to step on you. Go ahead. You're good. Um, I don't think it's like, dang it. Now I forgot what I was going to say. Um, I feel like it's like, I agree with the fact that it's bad to, you know, take your wins based on how many cardiac arrest saves you have. But like, you know, in EMS charts, there's that little drop down where it's like initial patient acuity. And then it's like patient outcome. Did they unchanged, improve, get worse? And it's like every time that you're able to sit there and click that, you know what, they improved. Whether it's I sat there and I talked to the little old lady who really just needed somebody to talk to. And she really had no medical complaints, but she felt better emotionally. That's an improved. Or, you know, I gave man pain management and they actually improved. Or I actually helped the diff breather. Every time that you click that little improved button, that's a little, you did your job correctly that day. And it's not saying that the days where the patient craps out on you, you did your job wrong because sometimes the deck's just stacked against you. But if you actively tried your hardest and you have that ability to press the little improve button, I don't think it's like, that's a win. And I get that, you know, we do three codes a year where you get ROSC maybe. And like, that's a big deal for you to even be on three codes a year where you get ROSC. But I also don't necessarily disagree with running a code a week while you're in medic school or, you know, you're doing the same really bad asthma attack every single day when you're in EMT school, because those are the ones that those are the really, really bad patients that you're not going to want to forget how to do your skills on. Because, right. you know, you can sit there and take 10 minutes to do an IV on grandma who really just needs a little fluid. Right. No, I don't think we're saying, you know, don't don't train on the stuff because, yeah, when those low frequency occurrences, you know, happen, you don't want to have to think about shit. You just want to be automatic. So that's where the training comes in. But it's funny. I, I like the point you made with the drop downs. So I will then ask you this question at the end of a year, when the agency posts all their, you know, this is how we measure ourselves as an agency. What do you see? Intubations, cardiac arrests, you know, calls answered calls, all that, you know, mutual aid call, all that crap. Where do you ever see how many times did we bring a patient in with improvements? Yeah, but 
ever. That's not something that's hard to change. I mean, all it is, I mean, <laughs> it the really way Nemesis runs data nowadays, that's something right. super easy to change. You there's literally so, just need to run yeah, a report so and be data. like, Gerard improved 98% right. of his patients. Bingo. Right, exactly. Why aren't we doing that? I don't think that's something anybody's ever thought about. Well, Why haven't we? <laughs> you know? Because it's never been something we've done before, which because doesn't there's necessarily no... make it a bad thing, but somebody's right. got to bring it to the table. Right, right. No, no. That, that, I'm, I'm just being more of like a rhetorical question, right? The point is, is because of the whole, and it, you know, the, we're going to do the whole, you know, professional callback thing. Uh, because of the whole hero complex, who cares about whether or not you had 90% improvements, you know, how many massive MVAs did you do? Right. You know, how many times can you sit there and be like, you got a badass over here. Exactly. (laughs) I think it comes down to more percentage based than anything else, because say Turk does three intubations the whole year because, you know, he was having a good year and, Nobody needed to be tubed on his watch, but he got three out of three. That's 100% versus Joe Schmo over here who's done 20 because for some reason he's just got all the dead people and he's gotten two. You suck. And I think if we looked at things more percentage-based instead of, oh, well, I had the chance to do X, Y, Z, like it doesn't come down to chances. It comes down to how you did when the opportunity presented itself. Yeah, and I think it is a – that is an amazing metric that, again, I don't think any administrator has. Like, I've never seen that in 15 years. Oh, you know, you you always see, oh yeah, you know, Turk was 100 percent, he was 85 percent with IV school, blah blah blah, whatever, and you don't ever see like, hey, you dropped off, you know, you did 150 calls this year, you dropped off 100 patients, 55 of them got better from the time you you met them to the time you dropped them off to the hospital, you know? And that's, that's a, like, you don't even need percentages. You could sit there and be like, there's a hundred charts that you did, 55 of them improved. Perfect. I'm that that's cool. Right. But also from an education standpoint, you know, yes, we have to sit there and go, there are patients out there that will not improve no matter what you do. And we get that. But at the same point, you could take that data and go, huh, okay, Gerard did 100 patient contacts. He transported 100 people. 97 of them were either unchanged or, you know, got worse in his care. I wonder why. Well, let me go back and look at the if there's any common denominators in these calls. And, oh, look, I found one. He's doing X, Y, Z. Cool. Right. Well, maybe we can take that and we can re-educate him so that now he's not making that same fucking mistake all the time, right? But again, yeah. the metrics that we use are pointless. I mean, yeah. they they have they have measurability, and yes, we do need to intubate successfully. But I think, like you guys both said, we weigh too heavily on those. Yeah. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, I know we have administrators that listen to this show. I know we have a lot of, you know, um, people, just providers that listen to this show. And I think, like, I'm, I am always hopeful that the people that listen to the show go, hey, that is a really awesome idea. Let me bring that back somewhere. Don't just go, hey, yeah. that's really awesome. And then don't ever do anything with it. Like, take it somewhere. 
you know? Yeah, and like, like she said, I mean, there's so much data that you can, I mean, especially now, I mean, I'm pretty pretty sure that most places, I would, I would say the overwhelming majority now use uh, some form of EPCR. Um, so, yeah, the data that you can easily get with a click is immeasurable. I mean, there's just so much there. So, yeah, yeah why aren't you tabulating things like that? And, uh, you know, giving us actually, you know, something that actually will, you know, make you go, Hey, yeah, look, I'm actually pretty good at my job. And yeah, this is, this is all right. Yeah. You know? Yep. It, and, it, and it takes that worry <clears throat> and burden off of your providers too, you know, sitting right. there going, Oh man, you know, I'm, I've really been doing bad. Now they get in that lack of confidence and that's when mistakes happen is when providers are not confident. You know, yeah. and there's that there's that gray area right in the middle of being overconfident and not confident enough. And that's where you need to sit, because at either ends of that spectrum, you're going to fuck up. And, yeah. you know, if you have your administrator going, hey, you know what? I noticed that you've been down a little bit like, you know, what's going on? Oh, man, you know, I think I, I've been doing really bad. Like I've had really hard patients. They've been doing this, that, the other thing, like unsuccessful outcomes, whatever that'll break people, you know, because they think it's them. And if an administrator comes in and goes, yo, listen, I know you're in a rough spot, but look over the course of the last month, you've done X, Y, Z way better than, you know, you've done poorly. That's going to, that's going to boost that provider's confidence. So they're not in that make a mistake zone, you know? So let me, let me just read a, a little bit more. So, um, we got into, you know, uh, what kind of calls that we actually do. And it, they go on to say, aided by, uh, aided by more jaded senior colleagues uh, who also originally got the job for the thrill and found, uh, you know, banality, the job becomes bullshit. The calls are bullshit. And by extension, the patients are now bullshit. This helps grease the way to burn out poor care and high turnover as EMTs and medics look to escape the job for something better. I mean, we've all seen that. Um, We know EMS exists in a weird sort of netherworld between medicine, public health, and public safety, which, again, I disagree with that from our first conversation. The range of what EMS is expected to do uh, out in the world and the future demands of the people we serve is astonishing um, in in its scope. But there is a problem with this, one that... They say we've overlooked. First, this job is very rarely about saving lives. Take a second from reading this and think back over your career. This is exactly what you did, Gerard. How many times can you say that the thing you did was the direct causation of the person walking out of the hospital? It's quite rare. In over 25 years of being an EMT and then a paramedic, I can confidently tell you less than five of those instances in my career. Less than five out of a lot of patient contacts. Um, am I a, am I a poor clinician? Don't think so. Unlucky? Maybe. Or is it that realistically, while our chances to pull someone from the grip of the Grim Reaper themselves is very rare, the opportunity to help, and this is the most important thing, the opportunity to help someone to relieve suffering, to assist families with end of life and grieving is more of what we do. We don't sell it that way, but it's much more common. Giving patients a smooth, comfortable transport, addressing discomfort, 
in a variety of ways and reducing or taking away pain are things that we do every day or should. Calming nervous patients or family and reassuring them that we do in fact care and that we will take good care of their loved one uh, isn't something we look at as cool. However, um, you know, we, we look at it as we don't take time for the touchy-feely stuff. We're only there to save lives. Or as the shirt right. says, train to save your ass, not kiss it. And I, like, I don't even need to read the rest, um, you know, but they get into the, the fact of this. Uh, they, they turn around to say the toxic heroism is the idea of what we do is heroic and extraordinary all of the time. And, you know, when in reality, it's everything that we just laid out and, and more, you know, um, being at people's side, like there is, yes, we provide the service of healing and attempting to heal and, and great assessments and transport. But how many times have we just needed to be the psychologist or, you know, the ear to listen to, you know, or, you know, the, the data point so that people can understand because you explain to them what's going on because the doctors refuse to, you know. Right, and that was, and honestly, it's funny, I've done that more times than, than not where, you know, I've explained something to someone and they're like, oh, wow, yeah, like my doctor never explained that to me or, or yeah. you know, they didn't quite understand what the issue was they were sent home from the hospital with, so they get freaked out and they called which was going to bring me to what I was going to say uh, earlier on was, uh, yeah, you know, there, there's times when you go and, you know, people are freaking out because in their mind, you know, they're calling because it's an emergency and you get there and how many times have you gotten there? And once you've explained things to them, suddenly it's like, oh, okay, I'll just call my doctor on Monday. Yeah. You know, right. so it's not necessarily, you know, turning into a transport. It's, it's you going and, you know, yeah, providing that, you know, level of calm and, you know, Hey, yeah, maybe they didn't explain to you that, you know, yeah, you had surgery on your foot and it's going to hurt. Yeah, you know? it's, so, it's almost like, it's, you know, it's almost reassurance. I mean, we are... <laughs> it's kind of hard over Skype. Yeah, I know. Go ahead, Kelsey. Don't all talk at once now. <laughs> I, yeah, sorry. It's a little hard over Skype because I can't tell you when you guys are about to open your mouth. Um... I mean, I feel like we are really, like, especially in the age of, like, telehealth and, you know, the fear of wanting to go to the doctors and the hospitals because everybody's overcrowded and overworked and nobody, you know, you get five seconds with that doctor because he's got 30 other patients he's trying to get discharged. We really are, like, the face-to-face, the real, like, put a face to the person actively helping you. And, I mean, how many other professions do you actually get to sit there for – 40 minutes, and this is my only patient, my only job is to fix whatever that they need help fixing today. Right. And I think, like, you know, you want something new to paint EMS as, and it's not that we're the life-saving heroes, but, like, we're the healthcare profession that actively gets to do one-on-one patient care and actively see within a 10-minute, hour and 10-minute transport time the difference that we can make for that one person. Yeah, I mean, it almost goes to the it almost really kind of begs that, you know, one of the changes to be made, get the E out of EMS, you know, damn skippy, call it FM, call it FMS or something, you know, field medical services or some shit. Yeah. You know, just something that, that indicates that, 
yeah, we're providing medical service outside of a building. Right. You know, and we're not necessarily here for an emergency. Right. You know, and I think if you start changing things like, yeah, I know that's probably never going to happen, but you know what I mean? If you start changing that mindset right off the get go, you know, when, when people, you know, sign up for their EMT class for the first time or whatever, you know, it, Hey, this is not what you're, you know, all that 911 shit you saw on TV. Yeah. If that's what you're here for, there's the door. Well, you know, go, and, I hear the police academy's looking for help. Right. And, you know, you know <clears throat> I, I think in the overall spectrum of EMS and, you know, a lot of companies can do this, you know, uh, on their own without, you know, the grand scheme of EMS changing all over. Um, the, the culture, you know, the branding, the marketing of EMS uh, needs to change into, you know, maybe changing the name from emergency to pre-hospital, you know, I mean, right. I, I don't know if you want to say pre-hospital cause then it turns into almost PMS and that's just terrible. Um, I'd rather stick with EMS, <laughs> not PMS, but, um, <laughs> but you know, something... that's why, that's why, that's why I went with FMS. Cause if I thought the same thing. I was like, eh, a little too close. Right. Yeah, I'm know? not going to do that. <laughs> but, um, you know, even even going as far as changing the names of uh, ambulance agencies from rescue squad. When was the last time right. we rescued anybody? We don't rescue people anymore. You know, we're not dangling on high ropes and wires and, you know, ripping people out of burning cars. And, you know, we're not doing yeah. that anymore. It's not emergency. It's 19, not 1975 anymore. That's up to fire departments. Let them be the fucking heroes. Whatever. I don't care. Let me provide right. my medical service. And that is every medical service from somebody that just needs a good cry and I'll listen to them and talk to them and get them a social service that they might need to the mega code, you know, 18 cardiac arrests in a bus accident after it flipped off of a bridge and rolled down an embankment. Cool. Mm. You know, it sounds like one of your, uh, it sounds like one of your classroom scenarios. <laughs> it's not that crazy. Um, you but, arrive on scene and you're the only one there. What do you do? Yeah. Right. But so to, to finish up, I actually did want to talk about classroom scenarios. So we have three well, very before interesting. You in, before you get into that, oh, I'm, I'm okay. going to step on you real quick. Okay. Because I think, I think the following point to that is if, if we are able to change this, and change the mindset, change the culture, change the way it's viewed. I think at that point, you you know, and I, I know you know administrators are going to hate to hear this, but yeah, you're gonna you're gonna wipe out. I would say probably a, a good portion of the people that you have working in this business right now, there because they're they're not going to be here. That's not what they're here for. They're 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 here to go do heroic things, right? You know, and they're the ones who end up pissy and moany and all that crap. Um, but with the people you have left your level of, you know, service is going to become better. Yes. And I think at that point, I think at that point, your higher levels of care might actually take, you know, recognize the asset they have at their disposal now, you know, and maybe use us for what we should be used for. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, the community paradox and the video tell like, like Kelsey was saying, we can go to someone's house and spend 40 minutes with them. 
Right. You know, a doctor can't spend 40 minutes with a patient. A right. nurse can't spend 40 minutes with a patient. We can. Yep. We're an asset. Use us. Let us do that stuff for you. Right. But if you, know? if you don't have the respect because you're a bunch of right. nincompoop whackers that keep making mistakes because we think that we're all that in a bag of donuts when really right. we suck at most things. And, mm-hmm. you know, so if you actually get the, if you change everything, increase the, you know, the professionalism level, increase the provider level. Like you said, weed out all of the people that don't belong here then yeah. or are not even don't belong, but are here for the wrong reasons. Yeah. They'll, they'll then, once, you know, if, if it changes, they're, they're, out. they're not going to come here to begin with. And the ones that are here that finally realize that this isn't what it's supposed to be. They'll like they do now. They'll just wither away. Yeah. And you'll be you know, left the with part. the people that actually want to spend 40 minutes with grandma talking to a doc on, on telehealth or, you know, giving shots in the arm or whatever it might be. You know, those are the yeah. people that the ones that actually want to provide pre-hospital health care. And yeah, yeah and, I, I think it's know, a great idea. And I think at that point, that would be... I think that would that would be a point where I think, um, you know, again, to the administrators and whatnot, that they would have a pretty decent amount of ammunition in their in their pouch to go to the insurance company and say, here's what we're doing now. It's called bill for service. Yeah. You're not giving us a flat rate for transporting because we're not transporting everybody. Damn skippy. But we are going to provide medical care. So, you know, here's we're going to charge two hundred dollars for that IV we're putting in. We're charging, you know. Forty dollars for the uh, the aspirin we just gave, you know, just yep. like the fucking hospitals do. Yeah, I feel you like know. if you think about it, I mean, you know, you don't want to call us pre-hospital care because PMS just sounds bad, which totally on board with. But <laughs> if you think about it, we really are an ER on wheels. But if you think about it, an ER has, you know, the nurses, the techs, the doctors, but they also were the ones that have the hospitalists that you know, come in and they're supposed to explain your con- their condition the best they can. And some days they do great and some days they don't do so great. And they also are the ones that have your social services and they do the handholding and they can arrange for, you know, maybe you need some help getting food care and that's what social services is there for. And they have all those things and it's just you and your partner and you have to juggle all of these hats. And it's like, you are actively making a change just not in the way that you think. Because the way we portray it is totally different than the way we actually do it. But you're wearing the nurse, the tech, the doctor, the social services, the hospitals. All of those are you when you show up to that 80-something-year-old who just got diagnosed with congestive heart failure and is freaking out because she doesn't understand what it means. And, right. and all, they hear, all they hear is heart and failure. Right. And now they're <laughs> they're dead. Right. Because you know, no, nobody no, ever oh, explained to them die. that it's actually something that's controllable and it's not going to kill you right now. Yeah, people live with it every day. And, it, and it's, right. you know, you bring up a really good point, Kelsey, that, you know, yeah, we always say, oh, yeah, we can do everything that the ER can do and, and blah, 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 you know, or ER on wheels. Realistically, fuck that. We're a hospital on wheels, right? Because when yeah. now there are a lot of things that a hospital can do that we can't. Cool. We can't do pericardial synthesis. Okay, I'll give the hospital that one. But when you break down what we carry, right? What is what is a what is an ER and a and a respiratory therapist and a you know ICU going to do to their intubated patients? They're going to sedate them and they're going to do control their pain and they're going to put them on a vent. Oh look, we can do all three of those. 
right? We can intubate people. We can give them drugs. We can, you know, do all of the things that these other places can do. And even in other parts of the country, there's even more things that, you know, they will allow people to do because the doctors are like, yeah, give these guys stuff. You know, there's IV antibiotics that are being started by, you know, pre-hospital providers. There's sutures that are being done by pre-hospital providers. There's, you know, New York is just kind of archaic in the, in the fact that they just don't want to jump on board with these things, but there is so much other stuff being done across the country that, that would blow your mind here in New York. But the, the hospitalists and the doctors that are overseeing these programs are realizing like, Hey, you know what? They can do a lot and they should be doing a lot. And I think maybe their messaging has has been improved to the point where now they're respected enough that these doctors are like, yeah, let's give them these things. Where here in New York, it's kind of laughable that the doctors are like, no, don't give them anything, you know. Or hey, let yeah, we'll we'll let you capitalize that letter, but the rest of it, we're not going to let you touch. Well, I think a lot of I think a lot of the it's almost like we're, we're you you have two trend lines and they're they're we're almost at the point of convergence now. And I think, like I, I kind of touched on before about the billing for service, right? Now, you know, right now we only bill for what transporting. You know, maybe a service fee for if we do like an RMA or something like that. You know, you might get something, you might yeah. not. But um, it, you know, yeah. I mean, what agency is going to want to, you know, have a rig that's only set up for community paramedicine, where you have the telehealth machine, you have extra drugs and pumps and things like that on, you know, for, for complying with, you know, with, uh, if a doctor orders, uh, you know, a certain infusion over a certain amount of time and we can stay there and do it without them going to the hospital, mm-hmm. you know, having us do that, you know, doing all, who's going to pay for all that or who's going to want to do that if you're not going to get paid for it. Right. So I think it, we're, we're kind of reaching that point where, yeah, but we have these capabilities, but you know, at some point the, the, the payment dynamic has got to change because it's, it's, it's archaic. Yes. There are places elsewhere, like in the U.S. and like overseas, that community paramedicine is becoming like a major thing. Go, go to Germany. It, it it's not even becoming. It is. Okay, well, well I don't exactly pay attention is. to Germany. If I'm being fully honest with you, I'm sorry so, to the people in Germany. I just have not ever looked into your EMS system. Well, no, and, but no. I was just backing up what you were saying. Is that is correctly? I mean, you you were correct. I mean, that's. If you're it, listening from the Germany, let us know. Well, and yeah, they have. They have ambulance that'll show up at grandma's house and make sure she's taking her meds. And they you know, they have like the pharmacy in the back and that is my you know, dream job prescriptions right and shit like that. Yeah. So, so that is it. That's my dream job right there. I just want to be at a handhold grandma there, every day of my life. There is an agency just south of us that has been doing similar community paramedicine for two years through the pandemic. They, so I, I recently just had a a pacemaker check. So I went to my uh, cardiologist testing office and the, uh, the one tech uh, is a paramedic and um, him and I, you know, he knows that I'm a paramedic. We used to work at the same agency together eons ago. And um, you know, so him and I, you know, get, get talking this last time. And he actually said that the, the local agency to where this doctor's office is, during COVID, the doctor's office pretty much shut down. So there were no, 
you know, testing for people's pacemakers, defibrillators, like internal devices, nothing like that. So the hospital who controls this uh, cardiologist's office partnered with the ambulance squad to take, to train on the testing equipment. So like mine is a Boston Scientific. To train on the Boston Scientific, you know, device, take it to my house if I have an appointment, and the paramedic runs the diagnostic through the machine, does everything, like blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah, blah, just that like they would do in the office. And, and that's part of their community paramedicine program. They've been doing that sure. for two fucking years. More people doing that. Exactly. But I think there's so many ideas that people could see in front of them, but they just don't see it. It's because it's not visibly in front of them. They're like, huh, I didn't know people were doing that. I literally was watching a TikTok this morning and there, it, one of these videos came up and the girl was like, yeah, me and my husband to pay our mortgage, we flip couches. And she showed like her whole system. She's like, yeah, I bought this. I, I, I got this couch on the side of the road for free. It took me about three and a half hours to fix it up. Here's before and after. And then I sold it for 370 bucks. And I'm like, people do that. Like, I didn't even know that was a fucking thing. Like but when you said flipping couches, I was like, somebody pays her to. I mean, I know there's fetishes for everything, but I like, you meant, like furniture rearrangement. No, no, she <laughs> she like she fixes up couches that she finds on the side of the road or buys it, you know, dirt cheap, and then she sells them for a profit. You know, I, I get it. It's and just it's like, that's not where because I didn't. I never heard of something like that. That's where my my, my, my mind did not go to that as the thing. It was like. <laughs> You're paying a woman to flip a couch? I mean, like, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's, like, hot yes, and hungry right. or The old lady but... that can't move the couch herself, she's calling and getting help. But, but my, my, my point is if you don't see it in front of you, you never realize these things exist. And right. I think that there's so many opportunities for EMS to do these things if the right administration and medical directors get together and go, hey, we got an idea. Let's partner up with with X Y Z and let's do this. And I'm because the state, the state doesn't care. There's no oversight that they're like, no, you can't do that, you know. So, so we're, I mean, so my question is, is, is who who fits the bill and how does how does the agency make money doing it? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I honestly, well, don't that's my know. point because I mean, because you know, Medicaid ain't going to give it to you, right? Yeah, I don't all know. Medicaid knows, all Medicaid knows is billable miles, and you're lucky if you get a dollar out of them for it. And, um, yeah. you know, it's it's a it's an interesting thought, Gerard. I don't know if maybe they get a percentage back from the the bill for the cardiologist's office. I don't know. I haven't. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, there would have to be some, yeah, some way of, you know, obtaining compensation for it. Because, I, I mean, you know, so otherwise, like, like the point is, is you know, no one's going to do anything if we're not going to make money doing it. Because right. at the end of the day, this is a business. Absolutely. And I, I go back in three months. So I will make sure that I ask that question. Um, Definitely. Because now that is, I, I want to know that. And I will get an update on that one. But oh. so, so I, I'm, I'm going to switch gears here because I want to quickly talk and nothing that we ever do is quickly, but I want to try and talk uh, about training 
And, you know, Gerard, you and I have done many EMT classes together. We've built scenarios that you and I love. Um, and coming up to my next EMT class, you know, uh, again, I'm hoping that you and I can build uh, some some new type of scenarios for the students to go through that are drastically different from the ones that we've done previously. But where do you think training or at least portions of training? Cause you always need to, you know, do the cardiac arrest. You always need to know the right. asthmas and, and all the stuff that you're going to actually see that you need the muscle memory to do. But you know, should we be putting people through the, the, the you know, crazy scenario um, or do you think more of like a hand holding situation where maybe it's like a lift assist, you go in, you lift them off the floor and then they try and chat your ear off for 20 minutes kind of scenario and just see how the providers acclimate to that kind of, you know, environment. Yeah. The, the, the one I love doing the most and you know, it, she, that's the, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's because it, I, I don't know how many prospective students we may have listening that, uh, you know, I don't want to give anything away, uh, but I love the expressions on their faces because all they've done is, you know, respiratory or they've done cardiac or respiratory or cardiac or maybe a, maybe a low blood sugar or something, you know what I mean? But it's usually like the trifecta. There's nothing more than that. Right. And then also they come in and, you know, I'm in the corner going, shit, you're freaking doing your thing over there. And, and they're just like, what the fuck did I just walk into? Right. You know? <laughs> and it's, and, and, it's not... and you know, I don't, I don't make it easy. I don't make it easy. I, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm belligerent. And, oh, he does not make it easy. You know, <laughs> so, I mean, but I mean, all of a sudden, it's, it, it, now you got you, you can see the ones where, like, you know, you can see their 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 gears start turning and stuff like that, and then the other ones are where their eyes just glaze over, and they're like, oh, okay, I'm checking out." Right. You know? but, but at the same time, <laughs> but at the end, of the, at the end, it's it's both of them are learning something that they never learned before coming into that. Right. And that and, is, yeah, you're not just going to a cardiac, you're not just going to a respiratory, you're not just going to a diabetic. Right. You know, you're going to go to somebody that is not in your playbook. Right. And no. I think those are the, those, yeah, you have to train on the ones that we get the most because those are the ones we get the most. Right. But yeah, I think having a scenario where it's just like, what the fuck is this? Mm -hmm. And I, I never really thought about it, but yeah, putting something together for, yeah, pretty much, you know, lonely old lady scenario number one, you yeah. know? Yeah. Here you go. You're, you're called for, you know, sick person. Yep. You know, and you show up and ain't a damn thing wrong. She just, you know, somewhere through your conversation, you learn, oh, her husband passed away last week. Yep. You know? Yeah. Oh, this is why we're here. And, and she's alone in her house at night. What, and what are you going to do? You know, like, you, know? you can't. And, and the, once I read this article, I kind of thought, like, especially about like my MCI drill, right? Um, because we all know how, how absurd my MCI drill is. And, you know, I was thinking of that, like, is that feeding into this kind of notion and should I tone it to make it a little bit more realistic? But at the same point, then it got my brain just thinking like, Hey, you know, what about doing the altered mental status at the nursing home 
right? We don't ever do those kind of where, you know, they have the Foley and they're on their, you know, they're sitting in bed and their eyes are closed and they don't want to talk to you or this, that, the other thing, or the little old lady who's just lonely and fell or any of those like mundane, you know, you're literally just going to pick them up, transport them and let's go. You know, you know or, or how, how about the one with a social dilemma? Right. Like, like we had the one lady, uh, you know, where I used to work with you guys, you know, that I finally had enough that day. And, you know, we were there, what, three times a week, every week. Yeah. Because, you know, her spouse was unable to care for her anymore. Mm-hmm. And finally, you know, I, I think we we're on scene for an hour, just making phone calls, trying to get through to somebody who get some kind of social services over to, to, to get some help here. Cause right. this was not going to end well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean a scenario like that where, Hey, you've been you know called back to, you know, one, two, three mockingbird lane for the third time, you know, this week. Right. <laughs> and uh, you know, here, what do you do? Right. You, you know, know, I, I agree. I think there needs to be more exposure to those things. And even if you, you know, structure it as you still have all of your other stations, but you have one of these per week, you know, one of these per lab session. Yeah. Just something weird, something not, not necessarily weird, but just something that isn't respiratory, cardiac or diabetic. Right. Or trauma, you know, you know? and, and they, they might not do a thing except for just be a human to another human, you know, yeah. and that's it. And, and then they're at least exposed to these things. So when they get to the field, it's not just, oh, my God, I've never done this before. How do I just talk to somebody? You know? Right. Now, Kelsey, I want your perspective because you're doing lab scenarios now. And you're doing real-life care now as a paramedic student. And you and I have had the conversation of... Lab scenarios are not training you to see everything in the field. Can you kind of elaborate on on those feelings that that you've been having as a student? I'm sorry, I couldn't unmute myself. Um, yeah, like I feel like I mean, I know that my program definitely does like its best, and they give. I have went through some phenomenal scenarios, but then like, you know, the first couple calls that we did. In my ride time, I you're like I'm like searching for something to do, like itching to find a problem that I can fix because every scenario in paramedic school leading up to is you know it's obviously gonna go ALS. It's obviously something that needs you know I need can actually fix, but like sometimes we take in the patients that you know all they really need is a little bit of fluid or you're really writing it in just because you kind of like you need to be there just in case and like you know you refer to them as ALS light calls but like and I understand that you only have limited amount of time in lab so like you know why are you going to waste a 30 minute scenario on an ALS light call but at the same time then and I you know that's where your ride time comes in and I think like that's why it's so important is to do those calls where you know really all you're doing is kind of sitting back there you're going to put them on the monitor and they're throwing PVCs, but really no complaints, nothing you can do about it. Right. But you still take it in because you put them on the monitor. Right. And it's those calls that like, you know, I knew that, you know, there's ALS light calls in the world. And it wasn't like I went in and I was like, wow, like I'm never going to do this. I'm only going to run the codes. But it was like, 
almost harder to take that step back and be like, oh, there's nothing I can fix right now. Like, there's, I do not need, I mean, we did one call that was BLS all day. And I, I don't even know how I managed to do it. I ALS the fuck out of that call. You like, did. found every reason under the sun and then thought about it after. And I was like, there was nothing that I actually needed to do. Nope. But I did it anyways because you walk into paramedic school and every patient that you walk into in that lab scenario is going to be ALS. Yeah. So, and, like, my hardest thing as a student yeah. was learning how to turn over patients' BLS because I was like, I feel like I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, I know as a BLS provider that there are BLS patients. But in med- paramedic school, everybody's ALS. Yeah. And, and- like... I understand that because why are you going to waste lab time, lab staff, lab resources on patients that are BLS? And I don't think necessarily you can change that, but I think there is a discussion to be had, you know, the minute that you go into your ride time and your field time and it's like, okay, great. (coughs) The biggest thing that you're going to learn out here besides how to talk to a patient that's not your instructor pretending to be a patient is going to be to differentiate when to sit on your hands when you actually need to do something because in lab, you know you're always going to be doing something. And the real world just isn't like that. Yeah. There are times where your decision is to do nothing. And I think you you and I had the conversation and you touched base on it with one of our last patients that we had uh, together in that there's when you train to be a paramedic in paramedic lab and when you train in EMT labs, everything comes to the point, right? So it's, it's the triangle effect. You don't know what you're walking into and there's a wide array of stuff that it could be. And that's the base of the triangle when you first start your scenario. But as you move towards the top of the triangle, you're, you're throwing out all of your different differentials and you find out that it was asthma and only asthma the whole entire time. And that's the tip of the, of the pyramid. So you're, you're narrowing down and all lab scenarios are always, it's asthma. It's an MI. It's a cardiac arrest. It's, it's one thing. And then you had a couple patients where it could have been like three things combined with one. And I remember the conversation of like, they don't train us to think for more than one thing because everything is linear. It's asthma. It's CHF. I mean, like, I feel like there, we run the couple scenarios where like, you know, we've done a couple where it's purely assessment techniques and, you know, you've got a patient with the vaguest complaints in the world and you know, something is wrong or they just had a syncopal episode and, you know, they've got a million random little complaints and none of the dots are actually connecting to anything. Or we've done ones where you're like, I'm not really sure what this could be. But that's maybe been 10 scenarios that I've ran all year. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, we've done the really bad one where they're having an MI and now they're in congestive heart failure because of it. And, you know, their pressure's too low and they're altered for CPAP but and you can't give nitro. And now everything just seems like the world is ending because they've got seven issues at once. But again, those are only the handful of scenarios and I feel like especially with the way people present and I mean it's hard to not confuse your students but you do run into those patients where you're like um I'm not sure if they're in DKA if they're they're septic or if they just have a major head injury and I just don't know where to go from here right 
Yeah, and I, you know, again, I think if we transition some lab time to exposing people to these types of things, then maybe it wouldn't be so frightening or confusing when they actually get out and see it in the real world because, as Gerard loves to say, there's, you know, happy fantasy land, and then there's the real world. Right. You know, and we yeah. we have to train in the real world and not train in happy fantasy land. And I think we kind of train in both right now. You know, a lot of programs do. Welcome. Hey. Welcome both. <laughs> we love Shadow. Uh, so, yeah, guys, do you have anything else to, to add with this conversation? Well, yeah. I thought I was so rudely interrupted by the dog. Uh, <laughs> we still love it. <laughs> was, uh, all right. But, um, yeah, the other thing, uh, the other part about training that I would get into is, yeah, once you leave class, I mean, do we really train? Uh, you know, we don't really do much actual training, you know, continuing training. You know, we do CMEs, but, yeah, you, know, you sit in front of a computer, you click some buttons, you get a little piece of paper to print out and uh, yeah, you're good to go. Yep. But um, I mean, one of the things I think, you know, and again, it all comes back down to money, but you know, one of the things that would make us a lot better at what we do is yeah. If every six months we rotated through some form of, you know, some kind of an Academy or something where, you know, you go through and you basically go back to paramedic school and you get put through the paces and given all the weird scenarios and, you know, make you sweat and your butthole pucker and all that good stuff, you know, for a week or so. And then, you know, go back out. Okay. Now you, you've refreshed yourself on, you know, surgical airways and doing all kinds of crazy shit that you're never going to fucking do. Yep. You know, um, yeah, or, I, and even just the, the simple scenarios on how to not be a douche, you know, ha right. have the freaking grandma scenario, you know, things like that where, you know, you just going back and doing, you know, like in my former life, we used to call it recurrent training. And, you know, every six months you had to go for recurrent training and, yep. you know, in, in that profession, yeah, we had people's lives in our hands. Well, guess what? We have people's lives in our fucking hands in this profession. So why aren't we doing stuff like that? Why is it you finish school, you get your piece of paper and you get your key code to your fucking, uh, you know, your online CME program and off you go. You know, when's the last time? It's all about down money. And, it's yeah, always that's all what it about is, money, yeah. you know, and, 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 it is it is simply amazing the difference between say like my wife's job as a flight nurse and ground EMS where her her company makes her go to quarterly skills training so four times a year she's got to drive 3 hours to the central location, you know, location in the state so that she can, you can, you can bring yourself. Go ahead. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was really hoping to go through the whole episode with no, yeah, nah, nah. Um, but uh, yeah, central location is, was your uh, bridge too far. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, they go to this location and everybody goes through their test and they do a mock practical. Typically, it's like four stations. There's always a peed. There's always an OB, and there's always an adult, and there's always a cardiac arrest of some sort. So they have to do ACLS. They have to do PALS. They have to do OB, and then they have to do something. 
Um, and you know, there's always intubation, there's always IOs, there's always med pushes, there's always, you know, the skills that they have to do all rolled into these very elaborate scenarios. And, you know, she is expected to be proficient in all of those things. If she's not, it's just like a regular, you know, a regular practical. They take you in to a separate area. They re-educate you. They let you retest. If you don't, if you still fuck up, they take you off of flight status and they put you back on like, uh, like as a third training. So my wife being a 10 year veteran of the company could sit there and, and go back on, you know, OJT third status. If she fucks up until she gets, you know, the marks that says, Hey, you're no longer a fuck up. You've learned, you know, not learned your lesson. It's not, you know, punishable or punitive. It's just re-education. They want you to not be a fuck up. They want you to know what you're doing and not screw up the, the tubes say, you know? So when but if they you see also that think about it, like what your wife does is, I mean, how many patients a year does she have where all she needs to do is some handholding? Right. You well, don't really it. ever call a helicopter because grandma needs somebody to talk. No. And I'm not saying that, you know, we don't ever do those skills, but she does those skills way more frequently and needs to have a higher acuity for it. Where if we're going to do training, yes, we need to know those skills. But we also need to focus on basic people communication techniques because that's the majority of what we do. 100% agreed. I like, yes. And I'm not, I would say that if we did a, a, I would love a, you know, every half a year do a skills evaluation and put everyone through practicals. I would love that. Right. Or, you know, some form of skills evaluation and people evaluation, like, Hey, talking to the old lady who just wants to sit there and talk, bring your kid in. I don't care. Have a conversation with a four-year-old. I bet most people can't unless they're a parent. You know, it's just, it's hard to have a conversation with a kid because what do you relate to a kid with if you're not a parent, right? And know how to relate that conversation. Whatever they want to talk about. You know, that is the easiest key to communication. Just sit there and let them run with it. Yeah. But how many people do that? You know, and that's, I, I think there is so much about education and training that we could talk about. It could fill up another episode. We're not going to do that right now, but I, I think we touched base on a whole lot of things in this episode that in in coming full, full circle, I think everything comes down to the individual, you, me, everyone that listens to this show. It comes down to us changing the narrative first. If we start acting like pre-hospital providers and not paramagicians or paragods or, you know, EMT badasses or all these fucking stupid labels. And we act as clinicians in the field and we run with the whole customer service aspect. I think we will change. And if people want to be part of a collective, they don't want to be, you know, outside of the norm. So if we make being a, you know, pre-hospital clinician and, being professional, the norm, more people are going to jump on that bandwagon because they don't want to be seen as the outsider to that. 
So that's just my two cents before we end. Oh, I agree. Um, till next time, guys. I I guess we'll see you in May. Yeah. Woohoo. Donuts. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you'd like more information on the podcast or to send us a call to review, visit medicmaterials.com forward slash podcast. To learn more information, like us on Facebook at Medic Materials EDU or watch our weekly instructional videos on the Medic Materials YouTube channel.